Hello, everybody. This is Jennifer Matterese. And before I get started with the episode today, I'd just like to take care of the usual housekeeping. If you've been wanting to hear a particular disaster on the podcast, you can do so for a $25 or more donation to the podcast PayPal account at disasteratmail.com. Just add the disaster you'd like me to cover on the podcast in the notes of your donation, and I'll add it to the list. Normally, when it comes to requests, I do them when and if I can, but this will mean I will definitely cover the topic you request as soon as I can finish all the research for it. Just keep in mind, if it's a big podcast uh, episode subject, it may take me a little bit longer than normal to do all of the research for it. The subject of this particular episode is one of my own choosing and comes with a trigger warning for references to homophobia. If you'd like to help support the podcast in other ways, you can do so with a one-time donation through PayPal at disasteratmail.com or on a per-episode basis through Patreon at www.patreon.com slash disasteratmailpodcast. A per-episode donation of even as little as a dollar an episode can help me do things like pay the rent and keep the lights on and buy the stuff I need to wash the dog considering he ran out and got skunked today. So if you would like to become a patron, I would very much appreciate it. You can also follow the podcast on Facebook at Disaster Area Podcast and on Twitter and Instagram at Disaster Area Pod. And please think about rating and reviewing the podcast on iTunes. And as always, the sources for each new episode can be found at disasterareapodcast.wordpress.com. Also, throughout this episode, I will be using the anagram LGBT. This is not at all meant to exclude other members of the community, like those who identify as queer, asexual, non-binary, or pansexual, but simply for brevity's sake. When I say LGBT, I mean all of us. I just get really, really tongue-tied and I don't want to screw up getting any bigger than that. Uh, I will also be following my usual rule when it comes to mass shootings. You will get one mention of the shooter's name at most. After that, I will refer to him only as the shooter or the killer. With all of that taken care of, thank you very much for listening and welcome to Disaster Area. Episode 114, The Pulse Nightclub Shooting. June 12th, 2016. 50 deceased, 53 injured. June is Pride Month, and this year the American LGBT community has a lot to celebrate. This past week, the current presidential administration rolled back protections which would keep LGBT patients safe from discrimination and allow medical professionals to refuse to help those patients. In April, the Department of Defense officially banned transgender individuals from joining the American military. Almost immediately after he was sworn in in 2017, the president's education and justice departments threw out rules which stated trans high school students should be allowed to use the bathroom which coincides with their gender. Different states are trying to pass laws which allow adoption agencies to discriminate once again against LGBT families, and only a few short days ago, the Department of Housing and Urban Development allowed for homeless shelters to discriminate against transgender people, meaning homeless trans Americans may find themselves quite literally out in the cold. I'm sorry, did I say at the beginning of this paragraph we had a lot to celebrate this year? I meant the opposite of that. The president's actions and those of his administration betray the promise he made at the Republican National Convention just prior to his election, when he stated, quote, As your president, I will do everything in my power to protect our LGBTQ citizens from the violence and oppression of a hateful foreign ideology. Which is sort of true. It's the hateful homegrown ideologies most of us are worried about these days. But that particular quote was actually in reference to the worst single attack on the LGBT community in American history, the third anniversary of which is creeping up on us as we speak. It is Saturday, June 11th, 2016, and I hope everybody's ready to knock back a few margaritas and salsa their way across the dance floor because it's Latin night at Pulse Nightclub. The club, located at 1912 South South Orange Avenue in Orlando, Florida, is about a 20-minute drive or so from that other tourist attraction everybody seems to want to go to. But the atmospheres are somewhat different. The building had previously been a pizza place, another bar, and then Barbara Poma and 
Ron Legler snapped it up with the intention of making a special place for the LGBT community in memory of Barbara's brother, John, who passed away from AIDS a decade earlier. In fact, the name Pulse represented the beat of John's heart, still living on through the club's safety and public initiatives. Since it opened in 2004, Pulse has felt like a haven to the LGBT community, a place which accepted you for who you were and brought you in with open arms. Gay, straight, butch, femme, bi, pan, trans, genderqueer, non-binary, drag queens, leave your problems outside the front door and come in for a drink, a smile, a hug, a talk, a makeout session, whatever. Pulse is what you make of it, and up to and including this night, the last day of Orlando Pride, Pulse has been a home for so many lost and searching souls. But as a nightclub, Pulse is like so many other nightclubs in Orlando and throughout the world. When we first walk in, we're greeted by someone standing behind the reception desk. It's brightly lit in this particular area. We turn right to head through the curtained doorway into the main dance floor area with a stage to our left and a bar on the opposite side of the room. Maybe we want to grab a drink and make a right out onto the bar's patio area where there's a DJ playing Caribbean music. Or maybe we want to head left to the hip hop lounge where we see the men's room against the far wall to the left and the women's room to the right of that. And then at the other end of the narrow rectangular area is that second stage with dressing rooms for whichever performers might be stepping into the limelight tonight. Throughout the club, there are booths and seats and stools here or there, of course, but for the most part, everyone is up and dancing. Lights are flashing, music is pounding, and as the clock rolls past midnight into June 12th and then past one in the morning, about 320 people are tearing up the dance floor or winding their way to the nearest bar for another round of shots. At about 20 after one in the morning, now June 12th, Bar security guard Neil Whittleton is approached by a guy who asks something along the lines of, hey, this place is dead tonight. Where are all the girls at? Whittleton gives the guy exactly the sort of look you'd expect, considering Pulse is well known for being one of the most popular gay clubs in Orlando. If he's here looking for girls who are into guys, this particular man is going to find slim pickings in this crowd. Whittleton tries to dodge the guy by weaving his way over to the patio's DJ, but when he gets there, the strange man has followed him. Hey, you're security, right? He asks Whittleton. Yeah, I see you here all the time. Whittleton just ignores him, hoping he'll go away. As two o'clock approaches, so does last call. DJ Infinite, who is playing the music that night, starts his usual habit of playing more laid-back reggae music, reggaeton, or the like, winding the crowd down. iPhone video shot at about two or so shows group of men on stage, drag queen, host at the microphone cracking a joke or two. The party's almost over and people are on their phones making little videos or taking pictures or getting their Uber rides home for the night. Then, at precisely 2.02 a.m., the joyous atmosphere of the club breaks into pieces. The man Neil Whittleton was being hassled by on the patio 40 or so minutes ago left the club a few minutes ago, wearing what looks like an untucked white plaid button-down shirt and jeans. Outside, he moved his car closer to the front entrance, parked it, and re-entered the club. But now he has something he did not have when he confronted Neil Whittleton on the patio, a six-hour MCX assault rifle. He can be seen on security video from behind and over the reception desk, striding into Pulse with the rifle, the other people in the room immediately running for safety behind the desk as he walks through the curtains which hang in the doorway between the reception area and the main dance floor. It, It is 2016. Everyone has a cell phone, and plenty of people at the club have been recording the good times inside Pulse all night long, uploading them to Facebook or Instagram or whichever other social media sites they might use. At a few minutes after 2 o'clock, one video being posted to Snapchat of people dancing in the club is interrupted by the punching slap of repeated gunshots. Meanwhile, there's another type of video being recorded outside the club. 
Security footage of one of these club's exits shows people bolting from the door, running off in different directions as they scatter to avoid being shot. An Orlando officer working some extra duty inside Pulse that night in his uniform engaged the shooter as he'd walked in, but he soon realizes just how outgunned he is and retreats to get help from the rest of the Orlando Police Department. It won't take long for officers to begin arriving. Two SWAT officers are driving not far from the club and immediately head over, reaching the club in mere minutes. At about this time, 9-11 begins to, uh, 9-1-1 begins to receive calls from the club. One, in which the caller is clearly trying to keep his voice down so he won't be heard, says, he's still inside. Who's still inside? The 9-1-1 operator asks. The shooter, the man on the line whispers. It's possible this is one of several people who decided to make a run for the men's and women's bathrooms. People hide in the stalls in the ladies' room, sitting on the toilet and propping their legs up against the door so they can't be opened, and it won't look like anyone is in there anyway. There are over a dozen people in the bathroom off the patio as well, cowering in what basically amounts to a hallway lined with urinals. No walls, no locks, no stalls. Nowhere to hide. In one of these bathrooms, Eddie Justice is hiding in a stall and hurriedly texting his mom. At 2.06 a.m., he tells her, Mommy, I love you. Then, in club, they shooting. His mother texts back, You okay? Eddie says, Trap in bathroom. His mother asks, Which club? Pulse, he texts back. Downtown. Call police. A couple of minutes later, he texts back, I'm gonna die. She messages him back that she's calling the police right then and there. Maybe you're not a social person. Maybe you just don't like the bar scene. So maybe you're just now learning just how dark a nightclub really is. It is not well lit, at least not to see during something like this. At the best of times, lights strobe and flash and sweep from side to side over the crowd. This is not the best of times. People can hear the shots, the loud clap, 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 like someone banging a two-by-four against a garbage can. But all many of the witnesses can see of him is the occasional flash of the rifle going off. Even if someone else in the place was armed, firing back at the shooter would be absurdly dangerous to those still trying to keep out of the way and prevent being shot. The shooter meanders into the hip-hop lounge. He moves from one frozen, terrified patron to another. He fires point-blank at one, and then another, and then another. All of this on security footage. It doesn't matter if they're already lying on the floor, clearly shot by previously fired bullets. He fires again, and again, and again. In security footage, he is calm and methodical as he walks through the club. Some of the performers and others familiar with the club have waved some patrons into one of the dressing rooms, closing the door behind them. There is no exit from this dressing room. It is simply a closet at best. At 2.09 a.m., someone from Pulse posts the following message to their Facebook page. Everyone get out of Pulse and keep running. At the same time this is being posted, the first Orlando law enforcement officers are arriving on the scene and beginning to enter the building. When police get to Pulse in droves, their body cams are on. That's a fucking AK, one asks, in maybe a little bit of disbelief, which in this country, quite frankly, seems misplaced. The police order those evacuating the club to move away from the scene with their hands up, not knowing if any one of these people might be the shooter or in league with them. Then, at about 2.15 a.m., the gunfire pauses. Those hiding in the women's bathroom hear someone enter right before gunshots echo through the room. The men and women in the stalls are struck one twice, in the stomach, the arm, in the head. Then the shooter goes to the men's room. 17 people have crammed themselves into the handicap stall there, and the shooter fires into it. Someone's phone connects with 911, and then the call drops. When 911 calls back, the woman who answers begs the operator to send someone to Pulse, that she's in the bathroom with several people, that, quote, he's shooting at us, everyone is bleeding everywhere. The operator asks for a description of the shooter, white, black, Hispanic. The woman's voice drops to a whisper as she tells the operator the shooter is in the bathroom. Quote, he's here. He's here. Hurry up. She says as quietly as she can. 
He's loading up. He's loading up. She manages to tell the operator and the dispatcher who soon connects into the call that there are a lot of people in there. Then the call disconnects. As the shooter was, quote, loading up, as the caller put it, Orlando police enter the nightclub through the front. The area by the reception desk appears lit by the body cam footage, but it still looks dark in the rest of the club as the officers move deeper into the building. The disco lights are on, the bar lights, but not much else. No one was flipping on light switches before they made a run for their lives. Pulse, so busy and throbbing with loud, happy music only 20 minutes earlier, is now silent as the grave. No pun intended. What can't be seen is the inch deep of fluid on the ground. Water, spilled drinks, people's blood. The police had to walk through as they moved through the club. The officers have no idea where the shooter is. Then they start getting reports from dispatch. 911 calls are coming in from the bathrooms, people whispering in fear that the shooter was in there with them. The police move into the hip-hop lounge, with red lights glowing behind the bar and round purple lantern lights overhead. The walls are painted dark, if not black. It's basically like being in a teenage boy's room that's lit with a black light. The officers approach the restrooms with guns drawn, yelling, You in the bathroom, let me see your hands now. Come out with your hands up or you will die. But the shooter simply closes the door to the ladies' room on them. One of the officers curses, then asks, We got a hostage? Another curse. They know just from the 911 calls they've received so far that there are way too many people hiding out in those bathrooms with the shooter, making for easy hostages. If SWAT stormed the bathroom, they could risk shooting anyone in there who simply tried to save themselves from getting anywhere near the shooter and failed. At 2.17 a.m., a man named Brandon Wolf, who'd gone to Pulse with his boyfriend and two other friends, tweets, OMG, shooting at Pulse. We hid in the bathroom and we can't find our friends. Brandon and his boyfriend Eric have been hidden in the patio bathroom, making their escape far easier. But their friends, boyfriends Juan and Drew, are nowhere to be found. At 2.22 a.m., the shooter calls 911. He makes three calls to 911 in total, the final one the longest, and he's got things to say. For one thing, when asked his name, he pledges allegiance to ISIS, the Islamic terrorist group who may or may not even know who this person is. He says he wants America to stop bombing Syria and Iraq. He brings up other terrorists, the Boston Marathon bombers, who he calls his homeboys, a man from Florida who recently died in Syria while working as a suicide bomber for the al-Nusra fronts. He says the shooting is in retaliation for a weeks-old airstrike in Iraq, which killed ISIL commander Abu Wahib. He hangs up on 911. Witnesses in the bathroom can hear him muttering to himself in a foreign language, presumably Arabic. At 2.30 a.m., the shooter receives a text message from his wife. Where are you? He asks... Have you seen the news? She texts back, no. He types back, I love you, babe. Then he goes back to what he's doing. The police bring in a hostage negotiator and scramble to get the shooter's phone number. At 2.35, they finally get direct contact with the shooter over the phone. At 2.39 a.m., Eddie Justice is still hiding in that bathroom stall texting his mother. He's coming, he tells her, then adds, I'm gonna die. His mother texts back, They say, stay, them, presumably there. Is anybody hurt? Then, which bathroom you in? Eddie texts back, lots, then, yes, in response to her question about whether anyone is hurt. She asks again, which bathroom? They need to know. Four minutes after this, he texts back, still here, in bathroom. He has us. They need to come get us. His mom texts back that she presumably meaning the 911 operator, says the police are coming. Then at 2.49 a.m., Eddie Justice texts, Hurry, he's in the bathroom with us. Women's bathroom is. His mother asks, Is the man in the bathroom with you? At 2.51 a.m., two minutes later, he texts back, He's a terror. Yes. This is the last message Eddie Justice's mother will receive from him. While he has been texting his mother, uh, the shooter has been making a call of his own to local television's News 13 Orlando. 
There, he reaches producer Matt Gentili and once again proclaims that he did this shooting for ISIS. It feels like forever. The police outside, the shooter calmly waiting in the ladies' room, the people hiding in terror in the stalls, folding themselves awkwardly onto the toilets. At one point, the shooter asks the hiding hostages in the bathroom with him if they've heard of the Charleston church shooting almost exactly one year to the day prior to this night. On June 17th of the previous year, a white supremacist murdered nine African-American members of the Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church during a prayer meeting. Unable to see the people in the stalls, he asks if any are black. One man volunteers, yes, there are about six or seven of us. The shooter then said, you know, I don't have a problem with black people. This is about my country. You guys have suffered enough. At about quarter after three, one woman hiding with two family members, Patience Carter, heard a phone ring in a nearby stall and ring and ring and ring. The shooter snapped, give it up, meaning for the person with the ringing phone to hand it over. Whoever it was may not even have been alive anymore to hand it over. So Patience Carter slid her own phone out under the stall, hoping to calm the shooter and praying the other phone would stop ringing so he would think that was the phone that was ringing. It did. The shooter said nothing. But he didn't shoot Patience or anyone else. Time ticks by. The calls to 911 are getting frustrated. The people in the bathrooms call in, begging to know when someone will come save them. People have been shot. A few are already dead. Some are just injured, but they can't sit in that bathroom bleeding out forever. At 3.58 a.m., the Orlando Police Department tweets, Shooting at Pulse Nightclub on South Orange. Multiple injuries. Stay away from area. Two minutes later, the shooter's wife receives that text from him, supposedly. Another text from him about, have you seen the news? This is depending on which source you look at, by the way. As all of this is going on, the chief medical examiner, uh, bear with me, just lost my place. Uh, the chief medical examiner, Dr. Joshua Stephanie, is getting constant updates as he and his team are preparing to head to Pulse. 11 or 12 dead. No, wait, it's now 20 dead. Sorry, the figure's gone up to 30 dead. The shooter makes contact with the hostage negotiator a few times on and off. At about 4.23 a.m., the shooter claims he has a large amount of explosives on him, enough to wipe out Pulse and everything else on the block. He says he will put vests loaded with bomb materials on four of the hostages and blow them up in 15 minutes. He's been telling the hostage negotiator for a while now that he wants them to see about making America stop bombing Syria and Iraq and all the other places that they're bombing. And of course, the hostage negotiator can only do so much. But with this sort of statement, he's scaring everybody. The people hiding in the stalls stare at each other with wide, fearful eyes. Does he really have explosives like that on him? Is that the way this is going to end? At around this time, police officers outside the club push in an air conditioning unit attached to the rear wall outside the dressing room where eight people have been hiding for over two hours now. The people in the room have to catch it to keep the noise from catching the gunsman, gunman's attention if it should fall down and hit the floor. Then those people climbed as best they could up to wriggle out of the small hole in the wall that was left from taking out that air conditioning unit. But police are also occupied with something else readying themselves to storm the shooter. His claim to possess explosives on his person was a wake-up call. The police couldn't just patiently sit there anymore. For all they knew, he could be an active bomber rather than a passive shooter. SWAT readies a plan to blow their way into the building using their own explosives. 9-11 operators warn those hiding in the restrooms they will hear a loud boom, after which police officers should enter the bathroom they're in. At this point, they should get down and do exactly what the officers tell them to. They blow a hole in the wall. Then another. They hit it with an armored vehicle. One of the explosions nearly drops large pieces of the wall on top of the two or three people hiding within a stall there. The Orlando police tweet out at 5 a.m. That sound was a controlled explosion by law enforcement. Please avoid reporting inaccuracies at this time. At this point, the police come face to face with the shooter. They exchange words, then gunfire. Audio of the exchange sounds exactly like the end of a 4th of July fireworks display, when a bunch of fireworks go off all at once in a colorful explosion of light. 
The shooter is struck eight times. The man who bothered security guard Neil Whittleton on the porch in an effort to check if he had a weapon, then came back 40 minutes later to tear Pulse apart, is finally dead at 5.17 a.m., three long hours after firing that first shot. Per the Orlando Police Department's Twitter account at 5.53 a.m., Pulse shooting, the shooter inside the club is dead. As the police were standing off with the shooter and Pulse, EMTs loaded up gurneys with the wounded wherever they could. The Dunkin' Donuts down the street, sidewalks a block away, every nearby parking lot. Ambulances sped off to the Orlando, um, speed off to the Orlando Regional Medical Center, only three blocks away, loaded up with victims. Now, police escort victims out of the bathrooms, checking them for bullet wounds they might not even know they have due to shock. Over 100 members of the local police and county sheriff departments would attend Pulse that day. One team, having spent hours inside the nightclub taking in the horrific aftermath of the rampage, volunteers to stay longer to prevent other officers from having to deal with the same sort of nightmarish images now emblazoned upon their memories. 50 people died as a result of the events which occurred in Pulse nightclub in the early morning hours of June 12, 2016. This figure includes the shooter, who died after getting into a gun battle with police at about 5 that morning. It also includes Juan and Drew, the best friends of Brandon Wolf and his boyfriend, who were able to escape from the club, and Eddie Justice, the man who'd been texting his mother from the bathroom stall in which he'd been hiding. Despite the shooter's comment about the Charleston church shooting and black people, quote, having suffered enough, a look at the pictures of those lost shows he killed as le- at least as many, if not more, African-American victims than the shooter in Charleston the year before. But the majority of the victims were of Hispanic, Hispanic descent, and several of the injured were also undocumented. Visas were needed for relatives of the injured and the dead to come back and forth from the United States for funerals, for interviews with investigators, for possible testimony at trial. About 20 legal organizations, including the Orange County Bar Association, would soon start an overwhelming amount of work to do what they could to straighten out the legal statuses of victims and family members. Later that morning at about 7 a.m., Mayor Buddy Dwyer called a press conference to keep the media abreast of what exactly had gone on in Pulse nightclub only a few short hours earlier. As in most mass shooting incidents, information in the immediate aftermath of the massacre can be wild and unconfirmed. So when Mayor Dyer states, and it is with great sadness, I share that we have not 20, but 50 casualties, there is an audible gasp out of the assembled reporters. I remember the night that this happened specifically. I went to bed knowing what happened and knowing as far as the news was giving us that there were 20 people deceased. I woke up to a body count, a death toll of 50 deceased. And I thought that something else had happened, that the building had blown up, that another entirely different shooting had happened at the exact same time, that something else must have happened for that much of a difference. That was how shocking that was. Prior to this, the deadliest mass shooting in American history happened on April 16th, 2007, when a student in Virginia uh, Virginia Tech University killed two people in one of the school's dorms, headed to one of the school's classroom halls, chained the doors shut, and moved methodically from one room to another, firing at the students and teachers trapped therein. That shooting left 32 people deceased. It had been over nine years since the last worst mass shooting in American history. At 12.03 p.m., Florida Governor Rick Scott posted to Twitter, this is an attack on our people, an attack on Orlando, an attack on Florida, an attack on America, an attack on all of us. That day, he declared Orange County to be under a state of emergency. Orlando police would face criticism for the fact they allowed the shooter to hold his place in that club for three whole hours, from the time of that first shot to the moment they broke through the bathroom walls and fired on him. But watching the body cam footage makes it clear none of this was easy. By the time the police arrived, Pulse stopped being the site of a mass shooting and, at least as far as the information provided to the police could tell them, turned into the site of an ongoing hostage situation. The police could only go with what they knew, and even at the best of times in America, what is known about an ongoing mass shooting incident is slim to none. Take the shooter. 
Who was this man who decided to enter Pulse that night and start firing off an assault rifle? The shooter turned out to be a man named Omar Mateen, born in New York City on November 16, 1986. He grew up in Fort Pierce, Florida, a member of a proud Afghan family. His father, Sadiq Mateen, was a successful financial advisor who put a lot of pressure on his only son to do well. Pressure which the shooter frustratingly expressed with the sort of action you'd prefer your kid avoid. If he wasn't being bullied, he was bullying other students. At one point, he was moved to an alternative high school for kids with behavioral issues. According to the New York Times, on September 11th, the future shooter, then a sophomore, supposedly cheered for the hijackers. Before knowing he was the mastermind of 9-11, the shooter bragged Osama bin Laden was his uncle and showed him how to shoot AK-47s. One day, not long after the attacks, the shooter decided to startle the other students on the bus by, quote, imitating an exploding plane. At least some of these hijinks, to put it mildly, got him suspended for five days. When his father came to pick him up at school for that, the shooter also got a slap to the face. Eventually, after being suspended for more than a month and a half worth of school days due to fights, the shooter graduated high school. He attended Indian River State College in a program that trained security guards. Not long after passing the course in 2006, he moved on to another training program, this one for the Florida Department of Corrections. After the Virginia Tech shooting in 2007, the shooter made a comment in one of his training classes that one day he'd bring a gun in with him. That got him dismissed from the program. So he started work with G4S Secure Solutions, a firm supplying security guards to different organizations in Florida. He worked there until his death. Even after telling co-workers at a courthouse that he could get Al-Qaeda to murder the family of a deputy he apparently didn't like. Even after they transferred him to stand at a gated community's kiosk without bothering to tell the gated community about that little courthouse threat he made. Even after harassing a co-worker and getting away with it, apparently. He married a young woman named Satora, whom he met on Facebook in 2009, but from the start, their relationship seemed doomed. He proposed, but when her family met him, they said he acted strangely and recommended Satora not marry him. So instead, they eloped. At first, everything was rosy. Then things got darker. He had mood swings. He took steroids. One night, he choked Satora until she passed out, then blamed his anger on a fight with his father. They separated within months of their marriage. By 2011, the shooter and Satora would divorce after an altercation in which Satora was literally being pulled between him and her mother. It didn't take long for the shooter to remarry to a woman named Noor Salman. The two of them had a little boy. But according to Noor, things behind closed doors were no better for her than they were for Satora. He threatened her. He said he would take their son. In a flashback to Satora, he choked her as well, and on at least one occasion, he raped her. It's hard enough to escape an abusive relationship at the best of times, but Nora had reason to believe he could get away with whatever he wanted to do to hurt her and her son, and not just because of Satora. In 2013, her husband made a few comments which caught the attention of the FBI for supposedly, uh, possibly, supporting violent extremism. They investigated him for 10 whole months, they brought him in, they questioned him, and then they let him go. They even contemplated grooming him to be an informant, just like his father, Sadiq, who'd been working as an FBI informant since about 2002. According to the shooter's father, the shooter may have been triggered by the sight of two men kissing in public months prior to the attack on Pulse. But then came other rumors. Witnesses said they saw him at Pulse all the time that he had an Adam for Adam or Grinder account, that he told a fellow student in one of his training programs that he wanted to date him. A man who claimed to have been the shooter's lover for two months said the shooter was angry at Hispanic men because a Puerto Rican lover exposed him to HIV. His autopsy showed no indication of HIV at all. It showed use of steroids, but not HIV. Unsurprisingly, the FBI didn't find the shooter's, quote, lover credible. Nor did they find any evidence at all in his electronic communications, social media, app downloads, or web searches that he was attracted to or looking for men. On the contrary, they found more evidence he was cheating with other women. 
The FBI found that the shooter bought the two weapons he brought into the club with him, the Six Hour MCX and a 9mm Glock 17 handgun, two weeks before the attack. He also tried to buy body armor, but he was shot down, no pun intended, because the store didn't stock it. He scoped out several places to attack, Disney Springs, which wasn't really heavy on the security, another Disney park, Pulse. Because of his swearing allegiance to ISIS during the attack, the Pulse shooting was classified as an act of terrorism as well as a hate crime. Within hours of the shooting, FBI agents took Nora Salman into custody at her family's home in San Francisco. For 12 long hours, they questioned Noor, an abused wife who only just discovered the end result of her husband's never-ending violence, about what she knew and didn't know about the shooting. At the end of those 12 exhausting and unrecorded hours, Noor Salman signed a confession. In early 2018, Noor Salman was tried for obstruction of justice and aiding and abetting her husband. She pled not guilty, and by March, she'd been acquitted. As far as the jury saw it, there was just far too much too many inconsistencies and questions regarding the FBI's handling of Nora Salman's case. I didn't want to get too deeply into this because it does seem uh, like I wanted to focus more on, on everything else that happened, the actual occurrences of this, but there are a lot of really confusing things to this day about the motives and reasons behind what caused the shooter to do what he do, what did. And no matter what his reasons, what his connections, no matter what he was or was not doing behind the scenes, he shot a nightclub full of hundreds of people and killed 49 of them. Equality Florida started a GoFundMe for the victims and their families, which took in a staggering $7.85 million over the next several months it was up. One Orlando, a fundraising effort established by Mayor Dyer, raised $23 million, taking in $1 million each from the Walt Disney Company and NBC Universal. In February of 2017, Joseph Schreiber pled guilty to setting fire to the Islamic Center of Fort Pierce on September 11th of the previous year, which was also the Muslim holiday of Eid al-Hadda in 2016, and I apologize if I mispronounced that. The Islamic Center of Fort Pierce was the mosque which the Pulse shooter usually attended, although not on a regular basis. It was kind of three or four days a week, it seemed. The mosque was uh, had also previously been attended by Moner Mohammed Abu Salah, the suicide bomber in Syria whom the Pulse shooter mentioned in his phone calls to 911. Pulse never opened as a nightclub again, understandably. Instead, Barbara Poma announced 11 months later the founding of the One Pulse Foundation, which would turn the former nightclub into a museum and memorial to those lost on June 12, 2016. Now, if you look up the address for Pulse on Google Maps, the image you will see is of a wall of color encircling the club, of memorial artwork and photos of the deceased and support for the LGBT community. Rainbow flags and hearts and butterflies are everywhere. It's hard to miss the love and support of those affected by the shooting when you see that wall. The Pulse nightclub shooting would be the deadliest mass shooting in American history for exactly 476 days. At 10 p.m. on October 1st, 2017, a man staying in rooms 32-135 and 32-134 of the Mandalay Bay Hotel in Las Vegas, Nevada, used a hammer to break two windows, one in each of the rooms he was staying in, then raised one of the 24 firearms he brought with him. He aimed at the Las Vegas Village area across the intersection from the hotel, where thousands of people were attending the Route 91 Harvest Music Festival. As country music singer Jason Aldean was closing out the show, what sounded at first like fireworks can be heard in the background. But it soon becomes clear that the fireworks are rapid-fire gunshots straight out of a war zone. It sounds like an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie from the the uh, 80s it is when I say rapid fire gunfire it's rapid fire understandably Jason Aldean bolts from the stage mid-song the crowd confused is still trying to figure out what is going on when the gunshots gunshots start once again thousands of people made a run for it when they could where they could fenced in as they were for the concert 
In the end, the man in the 32nd floor hotel rooms would kill 58 people and directly wound 422, with over 400 others harmed in their attempt to escape the gunfire. It has been 604 days since the last worst mass shooting in American history. I've been wanting to do this one for a while, but obviously it's a really difficult one to do. But considering all of the rollbacks that we've been seeing in LGBT rights lately, it's been on my mind. And with the anniversary coming up, it's been on my mind. Um, so I started doing research for it a couple of days ago, uh, kind of blew right through them. There is a ton of research for this particular disaster. So it's really easy to um, to go through it. The only problem is in regards to the shooter's motives. And with that, I, I think at this point, it's less about the motives and more about um, the fact that the people were shot at all. Uh, the fact that 49 people are dead, 50 people are dead, but you know, uh, the shooter and 49 other people that he murdered. And, um, watching the body cam footage of what happened when the police entered that club, I think it's pretty clear how my feelings are on guns a lot of the time. And I've had uh, at least one person before who said, you know, well, when you talk about this stuff, why do you have to bring up, you know, um, gun safety issues and, and that sort of things? And it's uh, because that's what makes them happen. Um, <laughs> this kind of plays into that role. When you see the body cam footage, you have to think. It's really hard not to think about people who argue that with other people carrying weapons when somebody like this decides to start a mass shooting other people can fire on them and stop them it's dark in this club it is really dark in this club even with some of the lights turned on the walls are painted black the tile is black the mirrors are reflecting back black the very few lights. It's a nightclub. It is not well lit. There is no way. It's very difficult to imagine the police getting a good beat on this guy. And imagining somebody who just sort of walked in with a gun and taking him out, you know, just off the street is, it seems impossible. There was an, there was an armed police officer working there that night doing security. He couldn't do it. If he can't do it, you know, Joe Schmo down the street probably isn't going to be able to do it either. And so it's really frustrating to watch that body cam and realize that here are people who are highly trained. These are SWAT team members and they realize the situation that they're in. You can't just storm that bathroom and start shooting. It is full of people. I have talked... Um, in previous episodes, I believe, about the fact that in my family, where I learned about guns was from my grandfather and my uncle on my father's side. My grandpa and my uncle hunted, fished. Uh, you know, my grandfather had a garden. They were the kind of, uh, this is, I have the kind of family where when you would go to my grandma and grandpa's house and they would serve you a plate of food, everything on that plate was something that my grandfather had either grown or hunted or fished and so it wasn't unusual to you know you'd see a fish and you'd see a squash and you'd see some mashed potatoes and all of it was something that he had grown and that he had gone out and gotten and it was really kind of cool um, but he was also very safety conscious you know everything was locked up everything was in a cabinet I was used to understanding that you do not touch grandpa's guns. You do not touch Uncle Butch's guns. You do not touch them. You do not touch anybody's guns. Um, if I had even looked at one of those guns, my grandmother probably would have appeared out of nowhere and said, what are you doing? That was the impression that I got. And so I never touched one of those guns ever. My grandfather passed away a few months ago. I didn't really bring it up because it's just something that, um, uh, he, you know, he's older, um, he was not in the best of health. And so it was one of those things where it was just kind of 
um, it happened suddenly and um, it was very upset about it, but it wasn't something that um, we're not really close um, anymore. So it's kind of, you know, you don't really do much together. So it wasn't really as upsetting as it could have been. Um, you know, I don't want to make that sound too bad. Uh, but anyway, um, my grandmother in, is now living with um, my uncle who has been living with uh, my grandparents forever and um recently their home was broken into while they weren't home um uh the person who broke in uh was looking for some money for some medications and then they went to my uncle's gun safe and then they broke into my uncle's gun safe they took his guns and then they went to a nearby store and they robbed it and now i'm just kind of uh, hearing about that later, I just kind of started wondering about whether the illusion that I've had in the past of my uncle and my grandfather being safe with guns was an illusion. If it was something where I thought that they were being safer than they were. On the other hand, I tr think in some level I trust my grandfather more than I trust my uncle. So, uh, you know, it's entirely possible. It's, it's you know, with everything that was going on and everything that's um, happened recently, um, you know, um, either um, my uncle um, forgot to lock it or, or the guy could just break the lock, just figure out how to do it, whatever happened. Um, the fact that somebody was able to get into that gun safe is something that has made me question a lot about, you know, the way that, you know, I looked at gun safety before. And I was already, um, you know, pretty much about, you know, well, we need to be a little more tough about this sort of thing. But looking at this now, you have somebody in this particular situation who had so many different problems in his background. So many different problems. And he was just able to walk in and get a couple of guns and um you know I it's really tough to read something like this to read how easily he was able to get um you know the, uh, that uh rifle and then handgun and um I just wanted to say too if I um mistakenly referred to the title for them that is what I got from uh news stories and sources of like that so you know my apologies if I said them wrong because I get the impression sometimes that people think if you say them wrong or say the title of them wrong that that it completely invalidates your argument that hey maybe they're not actually pretty safe they're not actually all that safe and uh so in this particular instance I just um I feel kind of um, frustrated reading this story because this is somebody who clearly, um, you know, not even just in terms of, uh, I know that there are plenty of people who would probably argue that because of his religion, that may have been reason enough not to allow him to have a weapon. But I think it was more along the lines of the bullying and the um, uh, violence and the s domestic abuse, which domestic violence it, uh, there is no reason whatsoever that anybody who commits domestic violence should have a gun and anybody who wants to argue about that can feel free to argue about that with me because if you don't want to lose your gun because you beat up your wife then don't beat up your wife how about that let's try that um another thing that this made me think of was uh this nightclub that I used to go to around here, it's called Tanks. It's in Scranton, uh, which is the nearest city that I live uh, near, which that sounds so sad. Uh, but um, it was called Tanks. I don't know if it's still called Tanks. Uh, it's a club, which a nightclub, which over the years, it's kind of passed hands and changed names. And um, it's always been around and it's in kind of a central location in Scranton. So it's pretty popular. It's five stories. Um, the uh, basement floor only has uh, the basement only has one exit into a very narrow fire escape. 
which can get crowded very easily. Uh, the first floor has several different exits. The second floor leads out onto a um, a level that looks down on the first floor. Uh, the third uh, level above that is a darkened disco area where you can't really see very well at all. And the top floor looks like somebody emptied out an attic room in a warehouse put down a couple of oil barrels and a couple of boards on top of it and turned it into a bar. It could not look any less safe if it tried. Normally when I think about tanks, which I used to only go to with uh, friends like on the occasional Saturday night every couple of months, uh, on St. Patrick's Parade Day, uh, St. Patrick's Day Parade Day, uh, which in... uh, Scranton is basically an official drinking holiday. Uh, we would go and we would go to Tinks because they would have 17 cent beers and so everybody would get wasted. And the thing about that bar was I couldn't wait to leave because being in that bar, and I may have mentioned it before because it always struck me as the worst fire hazard around. I could not figure out for the life of me how you were going to safely get out of, say, that top floor in the case of a fire. Um, I could not figure out how you would get out of the basement in terms of, you know, if there was some sort of a fire. The minute smoke started to fill the place, you would pass out and you wouldn't be able to get out and the basement would just be littered with bodies. That was the kind of things that I was thinking about being in that bar. Uh, being in that nightclub. These days, I think back on it because I haven't been to that particular nightclub in ages. And looking at the video from this particular incident, the um, security footage and and the uh, uh, the like the Snapchat videos and the body cam footage, you've all these hectic areas, all these, you know, darkened areas and, you know, hidden turns and and rooms that you don't know about exits you can't see and and ways that you can get out that you can only get out if you know if you work there and there's just so much stuff that um that uh, makes it difficult to um you know they made it a prime spot to do this sort of um to commit this sort of heinousness and I think back to Tinks and I think back to how, uh, you know, we're lucky nothing ever happened in Tinks like that because it was dark and the disc, that, that third level, which was sort of a disco with darkened lights and, and you could barely see in the best of times. Um, The one thing I remember about that particular floor was that that was was one of the floors where the bathrooms were. And inevitably the line for the ladies room was like a mile long, but there was no line for the men's room on parade day. So I would just go in the men's room and all these guys standing at the urinals would yell at you and you just kind of go, I'm not here to look at whatever you think I want to look at. I'm here to go in the stall, pee and leave. And so, I mean, this is the sort of thing that you did in bathroom, in, in nightclubs. Um, you know, you, you do in nightclubs. It's chaos. It is dark, badly lit, confusing chaos. And that's before you add a gun to the mix. So, you know, that's all before you get into my thoughts about the approach um, to the LGBT community. Like I said, I keep saying LGBT just because I get so tongue-tied and and if I just keep it to those four, I won't um, screw it up. But that includes everyone. That includes asexuals and pansexuals and bisexuals and, well, obviously bisexuals and, uh, you know, uh, genderqueer, non-binary, everybody out there. There are so many people who are members of this community and who are being negatively affected, heavily negatively negatively affected lately by things that are happening in this country, in other countries, um, just things that are so unbelievably cruel. I can't even, it's, it's really hard for me to read all of that and not want to do something 
I don't want to say in revenge, but to do something that feels like doing something. And this is me doing my something. This is me doing what I do when I get frustrated, which is when I get frustrated by something, I direct it into doing research or I direct it into writing. And the podcast is a great thing for that. It is a way kind of for me to work out any sort of frustrations I feel with the news. For example, now that I've started going to therapy, I have that as well. But uh, in this particular instance, it was something for me to, to do to honor those people who lost their lives that night. There were so many people there who went there because it was a safe haven because it was such a happy place you see so many videos of it before the shooting um, not just that night but other nights and it's just happy and that's the thing that gets me when when I see things like people saying it's demonic to have like a like a drag queen reading to kids at a library why 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 I mean I know why I'm this is rhetorical I'm not asking for a real answer for that I know why people say that and I just this is why I'm in therapy now because because I ask questions like that I know the answer and I know it's just the unfathomable cruelty that some people feel no compunction about sharing and and it hurts. I saw something of a couple of days ago about how um, somebody was talking about going to therapy, and it's so of course it caught my eye because now I've started going to therapy, and I love my therapist; she's great. And uh, last week, I um, she said, you know, start doing like a feelings journal, just start writing down every day how you've been feeling. And unfortunately, I haven't been doing that all week. But um, I had been doing it last week. And when I went to go see her, um, she asked me to read something from it. So I basically read that um, in a particular entry where I expressed that I feel frustrated um, all the time. I'm just frustrated. There's what can I do? I need to do something. I and I can't and I feel futile about that. I have no money. So I can't give money all the time to help with things that I want to help with or donate to to organizations that I think will help. I can't. Um, I don't I work two jobs and I try to do this. So I don't have the time to do certain things um, like volunteer or anything like that. And then to read the news and see all these cruel things and that's the main point the cruelty that makes me mad and makes me upset and makes me need therapy and then you kind of feel bad about saying things like that because it makes it sound like I'm taking all of the world's problems under my shoulders and maybe I shouldn't do that and then I was reading this post and it was somebody saying um, they had been talking to the therapist and um, uh, they were saying to the therapist, the therapist was saying something like, well, how are you? And they were saying like, every the world is a, a burning dumpster fire and everybody's horrible and, and, you know, like, I don't know what to do when the world's ending and, you know, all of these things, the horrible things are happening and, and, um, and trying to, you know, imagine the look on their therapist's face when they said something like that. And the therapist actually responded and said, you know, I'm getting all of these people who um, who are coming into therapy and saying exactly these things and you don't know what to tell them. The therapist was like, I don't know what to tell them when they come in and say, it's really hard to figure out what to say to somebody when they say, I feel terrified and upset because... Um, every, you know, there's so many cruel things that are happening. The climate change is tearing the world apart. Um, you know, there's a, a, a threat of nuclear annihilation again, which yay, you know, uh, there are, um, all sorts of things, you know, measles is coming back because people won't vaccinate and dear God, please vaccinate your children please um but you know coming in and just saying all of these things and saying they're terrified for the future what do you say though because there's reasons to be terrified for the future these are not invalid reasons it's not people coming in saying i'm terrified and i don't know why 
it's people coming in with anxiety and depression and saying, I'm terrified. And here's 50 reasons why I'm terrified. And so um, this is one of them. So many times, and I know people who, you know, who are like me, you know, who will enter a building or who um, are at work and know their exits and not just because of fire, but because you kind of keep an eye on your coworkers too. Well, is, would that, is that the guy? Is that the guy who's going to, you know, one of these days, somebody in this place is going to shoot the place up. You have that thought every time you work at a place, every time. It's like, it's like when the news stories were coming out about the possibility that certain states may considering arming teachers to prevent school shootings, which has its own list of problems. But my reaction to that was basically, um, if you can't think of a teacher in your life that you wouldn't have armed ever, um, I don't know, you led a blessed life. Because I can think of the exact teacher in my lifetime that I would never have allowed anywhere near a gun. And it translates now into... Um, you know, it translates now into your coworkers. Everybody knows the coworker that, uh, you know, if anybody was going to shoot the place up, it'd be that guy or her or, you know, usually that guy, obviously, for um, because it always seems to be a guy. Um, but um, when it comes to my place of business, um, I know my exits. I know all of my exits. I know where to hide and I know where to go. And that's me just being paranoid. That's me just being anxious. I'm always going to be like that. And I've accepted the fact that I am going to be hyper vigilant at all times, constant vigilance all the time. It doesn't matter. And I try to ignore the fact that if anything happened like this, I would probably freeze in place and be a victim before you could say boo and reading these sorts of things, you know, going through this episode, how many different shootings did I have to mention? Four? Um, uh, four at the very least. Like, it's very strange um, just living in this country now. Um, and, you know, every country in the world has their issues right now. Um, you know, God knows. Uh, and in America, <laughs> we have a lot of issues right now. And, um, I mean, in this particular time, I mean, if you read some of the reactions that kids have to, you know, having to do active shooter drills, like, well, I didn't have to do active shooter drills when I was a kid. If, if we, if you'd, if I went back in time and told my principal, when I was like in kindergarten that, uh, you know, in the future, we're going to have to do active shooter drills. She would have looked at me in horror. I just, and you hear the way some of these kids talk and they're just ready to sit down and write, no, I love you notes on their arms for their parents in case they get found dead and they're six. But, you know, it's, that's what makes doing episodes like this really hard, but I want to do them. And part of the reason that I want to do them is to show just what people go through and what it takes to be in that nightclub for three hours with a guy that has been shooting everybody who has murdered so many people in that particular nightclub and you know you can be next. You know he could kill you. He's already killed so many other people. Why wouldn't he stop at you? There's no reason why he wouldn't stop at you. And that's the terrifying thing. That's one of the terrifying things about living in America now is that you don't know when you're going to start hearing gunshots and it's not going to be uh, fireworks or it's not going to be, you know, um, somebody, you know, taking pot shots in the backyard or somebody out hunting in the woods you you don't know and um especially in where i live in the middle of nowhere um people just have guns and 
you know, sometimes that's okay. And sometimes you're absolutely terrified because the guy down the street is flying a flag outside his door that has a picture of an assault rifle on it. And it says, come and get it in a town of about 1500 people, uh, none of which pose enough of a threat for you to need an assault rifle. Uh, so, um, I don't know. I just needed to do this particular episode. Um, I worked really hard to try and get it done as quickly as possible. Uh, like I said, there's a lot of information out there, so it made it a lot easier. Um, a lot of information, but just enough information not to make it uh, a mountain to have to climb. Speaking of mountains, um, I do have a, a big long line of requests that are coming up. And also uh, there's another one that I want to do that is not a request, but um, considering recent news, I feel like I have to do it, um, that I've been wanting to do it for a while since I started the podcast. So uh, I feel like I'm obligated. So that's coming up too. That'll be another one of my ones that I get to pick. So, uh, but, um, I appreciate you guys listening to this episode. I know it was very hard and I suggest, um, since I've been talking about therapy this episode, um, that if this episode was as hard for you to listen to as it was for me to write and for me to talk about and all of that, um, Go do something tomorrow or the next day or whenever you hear this that makes you happy. Just no guilt. Go shopping. Go take a long walk in the woods. Go pet some dogs. Go to the movies. I hear Booksmart is really good. Uh, uh, you know, take the entire afternoon off, call off sick from work and just curl up with a book and don't go anywhere and don't do anything. The ladies from My Favorite Murder, their book just came out. Read that. That's probably good. I haven't gotten a chance to read it yet. Uh, <laughs> um, just do something that that takes your mind off whatever it is right now that is upsetting you the most about the world. And remind yourself of something in this world that does the opposite of that that makes you happy no matter what and that's your homework assignment your homework assignment is to do something happy because this episode was very sad and so it's only it's only right that you be happy that everybody be happy be nice to other people be excellent to one another john wick came out keanu reeves is on the screen again we love him and he's very sweet and 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 wonderful and he looks great for two hours uh, killing a whole bunch of people. Um, probably the worst recommendation ever after the end of this episode. But um, <laughs> go watch Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Try to ignore um, certain words uh, from the 80s. Uh, <laughs> um, but until next time, guys, stay safe. 